Well, we're starting a, um, a brand new series this morning called Advent Eulee. Um, if, if you're not familiar with the uh, Christian calendar, which <laughs> many of us aren't, um, there's what's called a liturgical calendar, and that kind of, for lots of churches, sets what they're going to talk about at each season of the year. Uh, and this is for many churches who are liturgical churches, uh, which we are not specifically, but that we're not afraid to, you know, kind of go in and steal some great stuff. Uh, this is the Advent season, and the Advent uh, season comes from this idea. If you were raised in church, then perhaps you know this, um, but for me, uh, I was raised in a church actually called Advent, and every once in a while we'd go through the Advent season, and all I knew was that meant Christmas was coming and presents were coming, and so I loved the Advent season. Um, but the Advent season actually meant a lot more. And before we, we get into that, I want to say a couple things just as kind of a way of letting you know. Next Sunday, um, we are going to celebrate... Uh, baptisms. Baptism uh, is one of the types of ways uh, that we have uh, to tangibly uh, recognize our relationship with God. And here's what I mean. Um, we have folks uh, at, at each service who are going to come forward. Um, well, they're not going to come forward. They actually have captured their story on video or are going to be capturing their story on video. Um, they're going to talk about how Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And baptism for us is a way that we symbolically uh, acknowledge that we have identified with Christ. It's a public declaration of the inward transformation that we've experienced as, we've placed, as, we, as we have placed our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. And so when the person goes under the water, it's like they're identifying with Jesus' death as they're coming back up. It's, it's his resurrection and raised in newness of life. And so we're going to celebrate baptisms at all three services. If you want to get baptized, if you've been thinking about it and you've been praying about it, and folks oftentimes ask me, you know, should I get baptized? My answer is always yes. It's kind of like if you've never been baptized before. In fact, perhaps you were baptized when you were, you know, a baby. And we don't think that that is insufficient by any means, but we know oftentimes folks who are older want to get baptized as adults as a sign that they are publicly declaring Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So if you want to do that, we would welcome you to go to downtowncommunitychurch.com. You can sign up or at the Connections desk uh, immediately when you leave the sanctuary uh, today. You can go on to, on the, to the right over there and talk to those folks. Um, the other thing is tonight we got a worship night. And we love to get together and to sing and to pray and to read a little bit of scripture, but it's mostly a time for us if, if you connect with with God, and perhaps if you don't connect with God through musical worship, this might be a great opportunity for you because when we sing together, what's interesting when you think about it is we pray to God all the time, but music informs emotion, and so oftentimes what worship is in terms of musical worship is it's connecting the emotion behind the words that we're declaring to God, and so we would love for you to come five o'clock tonight uh, and, and worship with us. But that to say, Advent season. When I was growing up, man, Advent was this idea. It was this you know, concept. But the idea and the concept came from a, a Latin word, uh, which came from a Greek word, which meant um, the coming or you know, anticipating or expecting. In other words, this is a season that we look forward to in expectancy, in anticipation, and in hope of Jesus, who was born in a manger. But... What's interesting is as we peel back the layers of the context that was happening, there couldn't be a further description than expectancy and anticipation and hope. And here's what I mean by that. When Jesus came to the world, there wasn't a hope and a waiting. And I almost viewed it because we have, again, the lens of history that we can go back and we can see things and we can analyze things. And we think, you know, Christmas, everybody knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was about to happen. And so they're kind of counting, you know, three, two, one, a savior is born. And everyone said, you know, amen. And that's just how the Christmas story happened. But what's interesting is the opposite is true. 
In fact, what we're going to talk about today is not only is the opposite true, they were without hope. Many of them felt like they had completely been deserted by God, but not because God had decided to desert them. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, it was because of their sinfulness, it was because of their shame, it was because of the rebellion that they felt like God had made promises in the Old Testament. God had made promises to Abraham. God had made promises to David. God had made promises to Adam. God had made promises to Noah. God had said, I am going to make you a great nation. And through you, Abraham, through your descendants, through your lineage, through your genealogy, through your seed, I am going to bless the entire earth. But it seemed like the promise of God was no more. I don't know if you've ever been in a season like that. But it's one of the more difficult things that you can walk through in life, I think. To think through the thought process or to live in the thought process or the mental state where you feel like, I've messed it up. I'm without hope. That perhaps you were were going down a thought in life or going down a path in life and you were heading in a direction in life. And because of some decisions that you made, you felt this sense and this weight that you have just gone too far, that you were just without hope. Perhaps you walked in this morning and the only reason that you're here is because you know, <clears throat> you've experienced a lot of things in your life and maybe it's a short life, maybe it's a long life, but you've experienced a lot of things in life and what you know to be true is that the path that you were walking down before you walked in here wasn't the right path and you don't even know that church is the right path. You don't even know if you believe in God. But you're just kind of without hope And you don't know where to turn. And if we're being honest, we've all been there. We've all been through seasons. We've all been through times where the truth is, is that we don't interact and we don't interface with God because we feel like perhaps God is so angry with us, God is so mad at us, and we have all of these things that we're not facing in life. We have all of these circumstances that we're not facing in life. We're facing the consequences of decisions, and we know beyond a shadow of doubt, if there is a God, God is mad at me. And we can feel hopeless. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps for you, your hopelessness is... You haven't gone to class like all semester long and you hadn't studied all semester long and now you're like, oh my gosh, I have so much stress and anxiety, of course, because you're failing, you know? (laughs) But there's hope in Jesus. No, you're probably going to fail, okay? (laughs) But, But here's the thing. Again, we've all been there spiritually. And the beautiful news about Christmas, the beautiful news about Advent is Advent, if I was to summarize this entire thought and idea of this series, it's simply this. No matter how far, no matter how deep, no matter how hopeless, there is hope. We're going to read um, a, a gentleman by the name of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And Isaiah would declare a number of truths to the nation of Israel. But I want to give you some context because the story really makes this make sense and have weight to it. You see, mentioned it a minute ago, but God had made this promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make your family into a nation. Abraham, I'm going to make your family and I'm going to give you this land. 
And Abraham, I am going to promise that I'm going to make your name great. And through you, I am going to bless the entire earth. That all nations will be blessed through you. And there was this understanding with the nation of Israel. That Abraham would then have sons, or a son, the son would have sons. These sons would begin to be called, you know, from their father. They would be called Israel. There would be 12 different sons. The 12 sons of Israel would become the 12 tribes of Israel. They would go through Egyptian slavery. They would be delivered by Moses. They would be gone into the promised land through Joshua. They would be through the period of Judges. And then there would be these kings, the most significant of which was King David. Many of us know King David because of David and Goliath, or David and Bathsheba, if you were there on that, you know, racy Sunday. But there was King David. And God said to King David, he said, David, I am going to, through your lineage, I am going to establish my kingdom forever. That forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, there is going to be a kingdom that is established that's going to bless the world through you. There is going to be essentially a Messiah that comes through your lineage, and his kingdom will reign forever. But what happened with David is as David transitioned the throne, as he transitioned the kingdom, he gave it to his son Solomon. Solomon, who was extraordinarily wise. In fact, Solomon took over the kingdom when he was young. Solomon had a dream one night. God comes to him in the dream. Solomon, God says to Solomon, Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon says, God, you know, I'm just overwhelmed at all that there is to govern. So I'm not going to ask for riches, and I'm not going to ask for power, I'm not going to ask for might. I'm just going to ask for wisdom that I might govern well. God says, because you only ask for wisdom and not those other things, I'm going to give them all to you. And Solomon was extraordinarily wise. He was extraordinarily rich. He wrote the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read those those books. But Solomon, in all his wisdom, was unfaithful to God towards the end of his life. And as the kingdom transitioned from Solomon, eventually this this kingdom in Solomon, as he was unfaithful to God, became split. There was this this international, this this domestic dispute. And of the 12 tribes that were similar to what we would think of like the the original colonies in America, these 12 different tribes would split. There would be the northern group in the southern group. The northern had 10 tribes. They were named Israel. The southern tribe was two groups. They were called Judah. And both had their own independent kings. And what would happen inevitably is the kings would be unfaithful to God. The kings would know the good that they ought to do. They'd know what the, you know, God's word said. They'd know what you know, God commanded through the prophets. They would know what God commanded through Moses. They would know that God commanded through the law, just like we do. And they wouldn't do it. And they wouldn't do it, and they wouldn't do it, and they wouldn't do it. And so God was in prophet after prophet after prophet. And they say, you got to stop. you got to stop. you got to stop. I know, I know, I know that you don't think there's consequences to your actions, but I'm telling you, there's going to be consequences, and you don't want to face them. We talked about this a little bit last week. One of the more fascinating things is when we looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see, man, there's so much discontinuity between the two. I say, there is so much continuity Because when you read the prophets, it's doom and gloom and doom and gloom and doom and gloom and doom and gloom. But it's because God's a loving God. And what I mean by that is it would be unloving. If I see my son, Rhodes, about two years old, 
We've got a, a, a gas grill at our house or a gas uh, stovetop, which is really testy. If you've got little ones, you just love to turn knobs and all of a sudden the house explodes, right? So we've got these little like Amazon.com little like things that go on top of them, you know? And if I see, if I see Rhodes, like take one of those things down, which he can't, thankfully, but I see him take it down and start like twisting the knob, I'm not going to be like, oh, Rhodes, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I'm not going to do anything to you. I'm going to swat that little hand and say, buddy, stop. You're going to kill us all. Like that's a bad idea, my man. And so God would see the nation of Israel rebelling. He'd just say, hey, prophet to prophet, stop, stop, stop. If you do this, I'm going to discipline you. If you do this, I'm going to discipline you. If you do this, I'm going to discipline you. And here's how the discipline's going to look. Let me spell it out in explicit detail because I don't want there to be any question. I don't want you to face this, but if you continue to rebel, I will discipline you as any loving father would. And sure enough, they would rebel. The northern kingdom more so than the southern kingdom but both nonetheless. And as many of you have read about in your history classes or if you've ever taken New Dog, Old Testament or perhaps in kind of the preamble to your New Testament classes, you know in about 722, the Assyrians who were the world power at the time came over and destroyed Israel. They destroyed everything that was in it. They just kind of had this turn and burn philosophy and anybody or anything that was left, they just exported all over the Assyrian Empire. And the problem was, is if you were a Jewish boy, or if you were a Jewish girl, or if you were a Jewish man, or if you were a Jewish woman back in the day, how you were a good follower of God was that you would do what he says, you would worship at the temple, and you would make sacrifices. And you no longer had the ability to make sacrifices. You no longer had the ability to worship at the temple. In other words, you could not be good with God as they felt it. So into this, into this, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, speaking first specifically to the people who were in Assyrian exportation. And this is what he says in chapter 11, verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. <clears throat> now, if you aren't super in tune with the Old Testament, then that's easy to totally miss what he's saying. It's like, okay, cool, there's going to be a tree that has a new branch. Oh, my gosh, I want to get saved, you know, holy cow. But, but, but here's why that mattered. He had just in the previous uh, chapter talked about how the Assyrians were this huge, this huge force, this, the, uh, these massive trees, and how they were all going to get cut down. And here was Israel. Here was this little nation. Here was this group of people, the remnant, the people who still survived, who were in you know, Assyrian exportation or exile. And as they were sitting there, they felt like perhaps because of their rebellion, they had been cut off from the promises of God. That God, we know you promised through Abraham. God, we know you promised through David. But God, we don't even have what was our temple or the northern kingdom's temple anymore. In other words, perhaps because of our rebellion and our sinfulness, whether it was a season, whether it was a night, whether it was a you know, decade, perhaps we've gone too far and there is no hope. He says... And I know you felt like God promised and there was going to be this gigantic tree that was going to grow up. And I know it feels like it's totally cut off and dead right now. 
but from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father. Some of you guys remember when Samuel the the prophet would come and he would go and say, who am I going to elect as the next king as Saul had kind of done some stuff to mess up? Whole different story, whole different day. He went to Jesse, David's father's house. And what the commentators will say is the the, the thought behind this of not saying David's stump, Jesse's stump, was it had sunk so low, despair and hope were non-existent that they wouldn't even proclaim a a, 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 a prophecy or a promise of David. But he says there's hope. From the stump, from the stump of this promise, though it seems dead, your sinfulness will not prevail against the promise. He said there's a branch that's going to come forth. Its roots shall bear fruit. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. By the way, if you're in the discipleship group that's studying Revelation right now, this is where we get the idea of the seven manifold spirit of God. <clears throat> if you don't know what I just said, hey, good for you, okay? And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or, dis- or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with his breath, the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness. The belt of his waist. He says, let me tell you, Israel, though it seems dark and though it seems in despair, you are not without hope. There is hope in this darkness. Well, what would happen? He says it would continue on. They would be on the world stage. And again, many of you have read about this in your history classes. Or studied this at some point. On the world stage, the Assyrians would get taken over by the Babylonians. There would be this kind of back and forth, and eventually the Babylonians would win out. But the Babylonians would have the same problem with the southern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, as they were rebellious against God, God would send prophets that would say, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. You got to stop. You got to stop. But they didn't. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians would come and they would invade Judah. They would invade Jerusalem and they would take this this temple. The northern kingdom kind of had like a bootleg temple. The southern kingdom, they had the temple that Solomon built. I mean, this was the place. It was massive. It was beautiful. And they destroyed it. And the Babylonians were smart as well. The reason they sent everybody in exile is they knew if we just come and we conquer this group of people, if we just come and conquer them, then inevitably they're going to at some point rise up. At some point they're going to blow up. At some point they're going to to want to try to gain their independence and they're going to fight back. And so everybody that we conquer, we're going to take the best and the brightest and we're going to put them in our center, you know, center, center, central place and we're going to use them. But everybody else, we're just going to, we're going to put them in exile all over the kingdom. And there's a prophet who existed when this was going on. His name was Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if you've never read a prophet, this might be a good, a good starting point from the end of the prophets of the Old Testament. Because Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because of all the prophets that spoke. There were lots of them that said a lot of things and they were very declarative and demonstrative in their statements. But Jeremiah gives us this window into the emotion known as the weeping prophet. And so as Jeremiah, 
talks to now the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom who would for 70 years be in captivity in Babylonian exile and feel like perhaps, again, this promise of God is no longer in play because we've just gone too far. So Jeremiah, into this context, declares this in Jeremiah chapter 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So he says, okay, it's going to get bad. I'm not going to lie. It's going to get bad. You're going to, lots of people are going to die. The temple's going to be destroyed. Tons of things are going to happen. But let me tell you, there is still hope in this in light of the fact that you are facing the consequences of your sinfulness. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, Pause. We take this verse wildly out of context, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Prosper you not to harm you. God's going to send me to Ibiza, you know? I'm just, you know, blessed. Hashtag, won't he do it, you know? Oh my God is an artist. Like, and we just take this and we kind of try to, to turn it into this prosperity. Like, oh God, no, I want something but good for you. Name it. No, 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 no. He, he, he. This is who he's saying it to. When you feel totally without hope, when you have promised over and over and over and over and over to God, God, I will never do it, 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 and you did it. And you feel like God won't even hear your prayers. When you're at the point, boy, perhaps for you, it's not that you promised God over and over and over and over and over, but you were brought up in a, in a house, in a family, in a community or a context where there was no faith. In fact, you were outspoken against faith. And there's this piece of you as you're considering faith that's thinking, would God even listen to me? I mean, all the things that I've said, all the things that I've done, all the ways and all of the proclamations and all of the, the debates that I've had, I mean, would God even want me? It's not, a, it's not a name and claim it prosperity. He says, no, no, no. When you are without hope, I want you to know that I have a plan for you. In other words, no matter what you thought about me, I have thoughts about you. And for those who have trusted in me, let me, let me tell you about this plan. It's a plan for your welfare, not for your evil. It's to give you a future and to hope. He continues on. So let me talk about us for a second. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. Let me just pause right there. For some of us, that's the entire take home for today. That you just, you're just trying to find God in the middle of what feels perhaps like chaos. Declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather from you all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile, which at the time had to sound so outrageous. Because the Babylonians were in charge. 
And everyone knew their international policy. Everyone knew that they would just go and they would conquer and they would exile. They would go and they would conquer and they would export. They would go and they would conquer and they wouldn't leave anybody around except for maybe a few people, but they were too small and too innocent and too harmless and perhaps too fragile to do anything. Yet at the same time, there was this group on the world stage called the Persians. And the Persians would battle with the Babylonians and they would win. And the Persians had a different policy. The Persians, you know, international policy was this. We're going to try to win the warring people groups over. And they knew that as they conquered places, there were lots of people that exist in each town and each city that were so fed up with the Babylonians that they would be, you know, they would absolutely fall and adore the Persians as the Persians declared. If you have been relocated because of the Babylonian exile, then you are welcome to go home. Then about 70 years later, for the first time, there goes this little wave of people. And it wasn't the whole nation, because the whole nation now lived in exile. An entire generation had grown up. This was 70 years later. This wasn't like two days later. So you've got people who are 50, 60, 65, some 70 almost years old, who had known nothing but where they lived. That was their neighborhood. That was their friends. That was their community. That was their work. They didn't know the temple. They had never grown up with a temple. But this small group goes back. And they start to rebuild the temple. As they're reestablishing Jerusalem. They're building this temple and there's some, you know, there's some kind of mischief going on. They eventually rebuild the walls around the city. And they go back and in the same place where they had built Solomon's temple, they recreate a temple. But the problem was, the temple was nothing like the previous temple. It was not even close in fact, you should read this. In, in the book of Ezra, there's a guy named Zerubbabel. And it says that Zerubbabel and some of the older, the, the, the priests and some of the older fellows who were around and the older people who were around, as they dedicated the temple, there was great cries of you know, wailing and, and celebration. And it said, those who had basically seen the old temple were crying, though they disguised it because they didn't want to be called out for the fact that they're crying because they're looking at this temple and they're saying, this is nothing like what God had first installed. Maybe that's the season you're living in. That you've walked back towards the promise that God's called you to, but it looks nothing like what it used to. So sure enough, they would go back. Jeremiah would say, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope. There's going to be cost, but there's going to be hope. And you know what the nation of Israel did with this? What they'd always done. What we oftentimes do. They rebelled. And rebelled. And rebelled. Known what they ought to have done. Known what God had in fact called them to do. But did something so totally different. And on the, the heels of that. In fact right around the book of Malachi. Which is the last book in the Old Testament. The last prophecy in the Old Testament. That's essentially what they're doing. They're not kind of saying hey look. I mean you guys are offering stuff to God. But you're just offering kind of the leftovers. You're not offering your first fruits like God had called you to. You're being disobedient. And for the first time, God did something that he had never done before. In fact, if all of that wasn't bad enough, I think what happens next, if there was any hope left, killed the hope. Because after their 
continual unfaithfulness and disobedience. Instead of sending a prophet, instead of sending a king or a judge or a ruler or a leader, God went silent. And for about 400 years, did not send a prophet, did not send a ruler, did not send a king. God said nothing. Some of us have been in that time where it felt like that. After four months, you don't really feel like you're hearing God. You don't really feel like when you pray, God listens. You don't really feel like when you open the scriptures that God is speaking to you. And it just feels dry and it just feels like it's not there. And you kind of start to wonder, God, are you there? I want you to imagine this. For 400 years, for hundreds of years, God says something. This is like if you take where we are and you take us back and you say, okay, God hasn't spoken to anybody since the 1600s. Like, you know how um, you have those things where it's like, this was the last time. This, this is what was going on since, you know, this happened last. Like, you know, this is what was happening 40 or one years ago when we actually had winning seasons, you know, and stuff like that. Just pray for us. You know, hey, shout out to girls soccer, by the way, killing it and the guys basketball team. Yeah, girls basketball team, or not basketball team, them too. But soccer team, national championship today, you should tune in one o'clock. Anyway, commercial over. This is what was happening, you know, 40 years ago. This is what was happening, you know, 10 years ago. I don't want you to imagine. For 400 years, it's dry. Nothing, nothing, nothing. There was no hope. There was no promise. The thought was the rebellion had gotten so far that there was no longer a promise. There was no longer an anointing. And perhaps there was such great rebellion in spite of the discipline that had happened. But there was no hope. How would you feel? How would you think? Because when we read the story of Christmas, we read into it this idea that everyone was counting down three, two, one. But they felt like, perhaps, maybe we're done. Because God hadn't said anything in a long, long time. Maybe that's you. Maybe because of who knows what. What you've thought, what you've done, where you've been. There's no hope. But the truth is, is that couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, one of my favorite Christmas carols, I think, declares this really well. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more on Christmas Eve. But, but let me just tell you one of my favorite songs. <laughs> it's uh, Oh Holy Night. And it's not just the part where it's like, you know, fall on your knees. You know, like, like the part. I used to sit there in, in church and I used to, to be with my sister and I'd say, you know, like, you know how normally like, you're like, whatever, I don't care. I'm like 11, you know. But then like at some point, like you just started to mess around. So I just like, I would sing that as loud as I possibly could. For you, you know, you kind of do that. I don't know why your face gets weird when that happens. But nonetheless, um, let, me, let me tell you why. It starts off. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. We're just like, yeah, you know, picturesque. And we've, got, we've seen the thing. We've seen baby Jesus. Then it says th- this line. Long lay the world in sin, in error, pining. That word pining is important. It means hoping, waiting, 
groaning, thinking that perhaps, 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 because of our sin, because of our error, perhaps God has given up on us, but maybe he hasn't. I mean, for 400 years, he hadn't said anything. And we've been laying in our sin, and we've been laying in our, error, in our, in our uh, error, and we've just been hoping, praying that maybe God hasn't forgotten us. And it says, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That finally, though no one thought, though no one was feeling, though no one was expecting, though no one was hoping that there was an utterly hopeless and depressing situation, that perhaps there was a remnant few of a couple people who thought maybe, maybe, maybe. Perhaps this promise, perhaps this shoot of Jesse, perhaps though it has been cut off, that from this stump, God is still going to do something with us through this. And it says, this next line, the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. That to me is Christmas. That this weary world that we all realize we are in desperate need of a savior, that we do not deserve God. Our rebellion has disqualified us and made us fundamentally incompatible with God because of our sinfulness and his holiness. I mean, his extraordinary holiness. We are incompatible with God. But God, when in the point in history when he should have leaned out, when he should have stepped back, when because of our rebellion, when because of our behavior, when because of all of the things, all the decisions, the times, the nights, the weekends, the seasons, the semesters, the decades for some of us that we have wandered from God when he should have leaned out, he leaned in. And it says, the thrill of hope because this weary world rejoices for yonder brings a new and glorious morn. And in response to that, we fall on our knees to the only one who is faithful to us there was always hope in. So, I don't know your situation. I don't know your sense of hope or lack of hope. And I don't know, everybody's different. Some of you have been walking with God for a long time. Some of you mean this is brand new. You're exploring faith and exploring God. Here, here's just what I want you to know. This season, we celebrate hope when we were hopeless. We celebrate the faith that we now have when we were so incredibly unfaithful. We celebrate God who was born as a baby and for the first time in hundreds of years, perhaps ever, the soul felt its worth. And there was this little sense of hope, this thrill that perhaps God is not done yet. So there's hope. There was hope. Sent in the baby and crucified on a cross. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that at the point in time where you should have leaned out, you leaned in. And God, as we walk through these next couple of weeks together as a family. Would you help us to feel that? To not be thankful for you, Jesus, just because you're the reason for the season, but to be thankful for you because we were hopeless. 
We were in despair. We were not deserving. We were laying in sin, in error, pining, hoping that perhaps you weren't done with us, though it seemed like we were. And God, I pray that whatever the situations we find ourselves in in this room, whether just wrestling with, with, with faith for the first time or perhaps been walking with you for a long time, but there's something in our life that just feels hopeless, you will help us see your plan for hope in a future, for reconciliation to you, Jesus. And it came in the form of a baby. And we are so thankful that that baby was the Savior, the Messiah, who died so that we could be made right with you. In his name in Jesus. God, please help us, no matter what the situation, no matter how hopeless it feels, to feel hope because of you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.